Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire to uh, particularly lift up Sharon and her ministry and just pray that as she's committed to those people, that you'd give her fruitfulness and that those that she's sharing the gospel would in fact respond and those that she's discipling, that they would grow. And we would desire the same for, for us as we share with people in a lost world, that we would desire that we'd be able to clearly present your word and your gospel to people, that they might be able to respond and come into a saving relationship with you and also those that are believers that we may be able to help them grow. And this morning, we want to be equipped from your word to be able to do that. And we know the book of Romans is designed for us in the 21st century to be able to do exactly that. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Linda's with us, so uh, we can officially begin. This is Linda. Hello, everybody. You may now begin. Thank you. We've been looking at Israel and how God is dealing with the nation of Israel, focused this morning on the majority of Jewish people in uh, the church age. And Paul is explaining what God is doing, how God is working in the world, kind of on a broad basis, and how his people in the Old Testament, how they fit in. We don't think much about it. We don't think anything other than what deals with the church, because that's all we're familiar with. But I've always said that world history is Jewish And we're living simply in a period of time where God is preparing the nation of Israel for the end of their history, which is a glorious history. And we get that not only from uh, the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the central passage is chapters 9 through 11. But those that don't respond, Paul describes also, beginning in verse 7, where Israel is hardened. And that's the majority of the nation, corporately, Jewish people that are descendants of Abraham. And there's a small minority that he called the remnant that we've been looking at. So in this passage, he's speaking to the church in Rome. And we won't get to the passage, but the next paragraph, he addresses them more directly, the, the Gentile portion. He's kind of focusing on them, calling things to their attention. But there were both Jews and Gentiles that had trusted in Jesus Christ. The Jews, he calls a remnant, and the Gentiles are part of the church, although he doesn't mention that. And we've been going over kind of the broad strokes of chapters 9 through 10. If God worked sovereignly in choosing Israel, chapter 9 verses 1 to 29, then he can work sovereignly in terms of choosing anyone he so desires, including even the hated Gentiles. So God has a plan for both Jew and Gentile. But since Israel rejected essentially God and that plan and the Messiah, God has set aside, not permanently, but he has rejected Israel. And Israel during the church age 
is under discipline. So that's chapter 9, verse 30 through 10, 21. But it's not a total rejection. It's not a permanent rejection. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. So we have a restoration that the world awaits. And we won't get to the passage, but there's a very exciting plan that Paul reveals in the the next paragraph that we'll get into. And it starts to build to that that passage that speaks of all Israel being saved. But that's a future part of what God has in store for the nation of Israel is their ultimate salvation and restoration in preparation for the final period in world history. So we've been looking at Israel as God's chosen people. They're still his chosen people. And as his chosen people, when they are rebellious, he must discipline them. And part of the discipline is the gospel is going out to Gentiles. I think God intended to use Israel in reaching the Gentiles. There's lots of Old Testament passages that indicate that. Some of them Paul even quotes in chapters 9 through 11. Well, he's got to answer these questions. What's going on in terms of Israel? They're set aside, and he gives lots of reasons. We've seen many of them, in particularly chapter 10, but some of them in chapter 9 as well. And the question is, is God finished with Israel? In other words, is he going to no longer deal with them? And he's already dealt with some of the questions dealing with the prophecies. Those prophecies, the the word of God has not failed. God is going to fulfill all that he has prophesied and and uh, promised. And chapter 11 is all about God not being finished with Israel. And I've broken down chapter 11, the future restoration of Israel, into at least three parts. One of them we might divide in half as I study it a little bit more. But for now, first 10 verses, God has not totally abandoned Israel in that he has always preserved a remnant. That's chapter 11, 1 through 10. And in fact, give some examples of Paul himself, examples of a remnant in the darkest time of Israel's history. And that leads to what we looked at last week, the remnant in present time in terms of the first century. So there is a present remnant, and we could even say that present remnant exists even to our day. So he maintains a remnant in all periods of time, and throughout the church age, there have been people that have responded to the gospel message that make up that Jewish remnant. It's a Jewish remnant. So that's verses 11 through 10. And uh, the second part, I'm debating whether to divide it into parts, but if we take it all together, we could say the restoration is yet future, 11 through 32, and he's going to describe in detail what that restoration will look like, particularly 20, verse 26, where all Israel shall one day be brought into a saving relationship. And this great plan that God has for both Jew and Gentile, I take chapter 11, 33 to 36, as Paul worshiping God, so I call it robust worship, as a result of the magnificence of 
this plan that includes all of chapters 1 through 11. So that's kind of a breakdown of chapter 11. And just to remind us, going back to how he starts chapter 11, the essence of the issue is raised. And that essence deals with God rejecting his people. So he asks a question, I say then, God has not rejected his people. Now, if you look at the end of chapter 10, it almost sounds like, oh no, there's, there's no hope. Uh, God has abandoned them. God has disciplined them. God has set them aside. And the issue is, is that a total and permanent setting aside? And he asks the question, God has not rejected his people, has he? And it's framed in such a way that the answer is negative. No, God has not. And lest anyone have any doubts, he gives the most emphatic negation, may it never be. And then we saw that he's going to give reasons why that's not the case. And Paul uses himself as the first example. So we have two parts to, to verses 1 through 10. First six verses, the existence of this remnant. We've looked at it. We started verse 7 and ended there last time. There's a remnant, but what about the rest of Israel? Well, they are excluded, the exclusion of unbelieving Israel, exclusion in terms of enjoying what God has at least during a period of time. And he's going to contrast the two groups. One he describes as the chosen or the elect same word that we find in other contexts that refer to a group of people that God has chosen. So he contrasts them with the hardened. So let's take a look at the hardening and what's involved in there. So verse 7, what then? What, what Israel is seeking? And I concluded last time, what, is, what has Israel sought throughout its existence, even in the time all the way going back to Israel. I think they've sought, as Paul puts it, righteousness or a right relationship with God. And they stumbled over God's provision of that righteousness. We saw that in chapter 9. We're going to see it again in this passage. Israel, they were seeking something. It has not obtained. Israel has not obtained that that they were seeking but instead, those who were chosen obtained it. Now, I give you the whole passage here because it's a complete sentence all the way through verse 8. And we focused on the chosen last time and what they obtained. And I think the chosen obtained that righteousness that is the main theme of the whole book. But the rest were hardened. So let's take a look at this hardening and uh, talk a little bit about what's involved in it. We've already come across this in chapter 9 when it talked about Pharaoh. So some of this is going to be a review. Some of the things I mentioned in that passage were very clearly it states that God hardened Pharaoh. So is the situation such that God chooses some in order to fulfill his purposes, and then kind of just the rest of them he hardens so that they have no chance. Well, we explained what is involved in that, and it's 
not just a simple event or a simple hardening, but uh, several aspects are involved in it. So let's take a look at the concept of hardening. Last time we focused on the seeking and we saw that historically Israel, this is not a casual seeking, epizeteo, but a persistent and a devoted seeking. You see that throughout their, their history. But it's a misguided seeking. It's a seeking with uh, self-involved, a self-righteous seeking through works, through effort, through ritual, etc. But they did not obtain it, as we just read. And instead, there is a group within Israel that he calls the ekloge, or the elect. So we looked at that word, spent time on it. And uh, they are a different group, and the separate group, the majority, actually, the, the elect are a minority, but the majority of Jewish people have been hardened. So let's look at that, the Greek word porao. And I think both Jews are involved in the process of hardening, as we saw with Pharaoh. Remember, we traced Pharaoh from the book of Exodus, and we saw from the very beginning it begins with Pharaoh hardening his heart, and it ends eventually with God hardening. So both are involved. So there's a human element and there's a divine element. And actually, the divine element is something of a judgment upon the, the rejection of the, the human individual involved. We saw that with, with Pharaoh. And uh, just a quick review. You might even turn to Romans chapter 1, because I think Paul has already explained this process and what actually happens in terms of the unbeliever and how that unbeliever becomes hardened. Even though he doesn't use the word in Romans chapter 1, let's take a look at it again, just by way of reminder, and I might have a couple of you read the, uh, the passage. Ray? Yes, sir. After, after you go through that, uh, like if you would if contrast chosen. Remember uh, that we, I don't know if we, we talked about it last time or not, but there, the verb is not there, that you that were chosen. Correct. Yeah, it's not, it, so it's just, it's talking about chosen. So contrast, you're, you're going to look at a, pro, a process of hardening, which comes from the, uh, you know, the volition of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I would like for you to talk about why, if you can, those who are chosen, in contrast, were chosen. Sit, uh, say the last part again. I didn't quite understand the last part. Contrast. I want you to talk about, I want you to contrast chosen there, uh, those who are chosen in contrast to the ones who are hardened by the process of their volitional okay. uh, decisions in life. Okay. Let's, dry, let's uh, describe the hardened, and if I forget, just remind me, and then I'll come back and try to answer at least my perspective on it. I think we, we talked about two different perspectives from our very conservative free grace perspective. I differ a little bit with some, and uh, yeah, remind me and we'll come back. But in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, 
a very important passage. Would somebody read that passage? Romans 1.18. In fact, Jim, since you got your mic open, why don't you start us off? And I don't know who else. How far do you want me to go? Just 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. Unrighteousness. I'm sorry, in unrighteousness. Very <laughs> important. Very does important. make a difference. <laughs> Good. Now, when we were there, I made a big deal about uh, the present tense of the revelation of God's wrath. This was, what, four years ago? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, and the question, and I think Paul answers it, how do you actually see that in present time? And when we were there, I talked about God's wrath in the past, passages that speak of God's wrath in the future, but this passage deals with God's wrath as history is working itself out. And remember, he's talking about humanity in general in chapter 1. So how is this wrath revealed? And it's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteous, and or those that suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what God has done is he has adequate, in fact, the focus of this passage, God has adequately revealed himself to huma- all of humanity. And all of humanity has received this revelation And now he's going to kind of chronicle that revelation and uh, what happened with that revelation. Would somebody read verse 19 and 20? I can. Go ahead. Connie. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Okay, so God has adequately revealed such that mankind knows God to some extent. There's no such thing as an atheist. An atheist has done what verse 18 says. He has suppressed that truth to the point that he has deceived himself into thinking that there is no God. But deep down... And at some point in his life, he knew because God has been clear in that revelation. And he's done it in a broad way, general revelation. Man has realized. Now, I use that word because I'm going to alliterate here. So there has been a realization or an awareness, a comprehension. And I stressed the the words in that passage. What is known, notice it's known is evident. In other words, it's clear. And God himself made it evident. And he's done it throughout time since the creation of the world. He's done it through the creation. His attributes have been known, clearly seen, being understood. Notice all the words relating to knowing and knowledge and being evident. So 19 and 20, we have realization. Now, What has man done with that? Verse 21, who wants to read verse 21? So actually, verse 20, they they also are responsible to respond to that revelation. And the end of verse 20 is they are without excuse. In other words, the revelation has been adequate. It has been clear. 
and it has been comprehensive in that everyone has known it. And what has man done with it? Verse 21. Somebody read it. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Oh, I forgot. He does use the word darkening there. Verse 21. So what did they, what does humanity do in general? Humanity in general, in verse 21, rejects that revelation. And God has built mankind such that when he rejects the revelation of God, a process begins of hardening. In other words, this is man's rejection, and it causes within him a hardness such that the more he hears about God, it becomes less and less clear and less and less evident because of this darkening. So man becomes futile in their speculations. In other words, they come up with other ideas. Today, a prominent idea is the idea that everything came about as a result of evolution. So we have to come up with these new theories, new ideas to replace God. But the bottom line is man has rejected that revelation. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of it, but I wanted to get to verse 21 because that is man's response. So man initially rejects God. That causes within him an effect on that old nature such that a callus, you might say, begins to develop a callus of hardening. Their foolish hearts became darkened. And they profess to be wise. They became fools. And not only that, but now they've uh, rationalized away this revelation, come to different conclusions. Verse 22, this has caused a reprobation or an effect within their, their spirits and their minds. They become foolish. And then in verse 23, they replace the revelation to fill that void, that emptiness, Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. So idolatry in various forms, not just bowing down before an idol of uh, material, of wood or stone, but mankind has replaced God. That's the process. And now God, as a result of that response, God is pouring out wrath. The wrath of God is revealed. And we have a long passage beginning in verse 24. And to keep with our alliteration, now we see the wrath, 24 through 32. The W is silent. And it states in verse 24, therefore God gave them over. That's the process where God is involved in the hardening process. God gives mankind over to their own thinking, their own thoughts, their own rationalizations, their own replacement, and that continues the process of hardening. And we saw that process when we saw Pharaoh, and I think that's what we have in this passage. So God gave them over to the lusts of their heart, in other words, their own impure desires, and their bodies are dishonored, so it has an effect physically. Verse 25, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. So now the the path down, downward, de-evolution, you might say, 
God gives them over decreating passions. They work themselves out. So the wrath of God is revealed in a present tense sense in that he lets people experience the consequences of their own sin without intervening. And I think he does that to those that he passes over. Now, I'm kind of transitioning to Jim's question there. In time, now those that are chosen, we all go down to this path to a certain extent, unless you trust in Christ the first time you hear the gospel as a young child, and some do, but most of us, it takes us a little time, and God breaks through eventually and convicts, and he illumines, brings us to the realization that Christ is the only way, and the choosing I take in eternity past, and the choosing has effect in time in that God calls us to himself. And when we are illumined, we trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans, it says we are justified. And then those who are justified, God will complete the process of glorification. So in Romans, we have the threefold. I didn't read the third one in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And then he gives a long list of outworking of that depraved mind. So I think Romans explains the process. And when we were looking at Pharaoh, we can see that worked out historically, even in the book of Exodus, and it's not stated here in this passage, but in, uh, in the Romans 9 part, when we were back there, we saw we're looking at Israel ethnically, nationally, you might even include corporately. And in chapter 9, in verse 6, as he's going to begin to explain why Israel is set aside, he distinguishes all of Israel from a small portion of Israel. And then he's going to explain that there's always been this small group within the broader ethnic national Israel. Even in the family of Abraham, not all of the descendants of Abraham are part of the covenant. Not all experience the the blessing that God has in terms of the relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. But even within that, there's a difference between Ishmael and Isaac. And he also, in chapter 9, distinguishes uh, Jacob and Esau. So this has always been the case. There's always been a select. There's always been a choosing within the broader. And by the way, in the uh, chapter 9 passage, he also describes them children of God, children of promise. So if you remember... Uh, uh, Ray? Yeah. You didn't quite get to my question then that that I'm trying to get at. Um, and I'm not questioning it because I have the answer. I'm just questioning it. Um, so uh, I, uh, I think everything you just explained makes sense. Let me say that first. Uh, then uh, the question is, why did God choose those he chosen? And it kind of leads me to think that the answer, and maybe this is not your answer, he chose them because he chose them. Uh, we don't know why. And it leads to a secondary question, is then why unlimited atonement if he was only going to choose some in the first place? Well, let me ask the last part. Uh, I think the Bible teaches against 
unlimited atonement. So that's the main reason. Uh, logically, that's why um, Reformed theologians kind of follow. Go ahead. Uh, you might want to restate that. I think you uh, re- wrongly stated your position. Okay. <laughs> you, said, you said you think the Bible speaks against unlimited atonement. At least that's what I heard. I meant I limit, limited. I meant, meant limited. Sorry about that. Yeah, limited atonement. <laughs> oh, racism. Okay. Appreciation. I'm yeah. like, what's going on here? <laughs> That's the way I heard it. <laughs> Thank you, Nate. I heard it the same way you did. Well, I yeah, said, I did too. I said it wrong because I caught the same disease that Jim started out with, saying the, <laughs> saying the opposite of what I mean. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. No, Thanks, I want Nate. I want you to always to do that. Uh, my my blood pressure came down. Now. <laughs> Yeah, I think the Bible teaches against limited atonement. There you go. But logically, limited atonement seems to follow from that. But because I think the Bible teaches against it, then I don't think we hold to it. So I don't know if that answers your question, Jim. So does that follow? (laughs) The way it answers my question is I I really don't know the answer. Can I... Ray, can I ask you a question that's kind of, well, definitely involved with this. So he chose Jacob, but in terms of Esau, for example, could that mean, does that mean that Esau was not justified or because we don't, I don't think we really know, right? Esau could be in heaven. Is that right? Or because Jacob was chosen for a specific he was justified, but he was also chosen for a specific purpose yes. for the line of, yes. Yes. you know, true Israel. Yes. But Esau could very well be in heaven, right? There's no evidence for it. So, but so the I Bible doesn't speak against him being in heaven. So right. yeah. that, that kind of goes along with unlimited atonement that Christ, you know, he died for the whole world. Yes. Uh, whosoever believes. Yes. So Esau... But, but not Could very, ev- I mean, it's a possibility. But not everyone does believe. Right, right. Yeah, okay. there's, there's, you might say there's kind of two sides of a coin here. There's the divine side where I believe that God chose some and passed over others. In, and I think in eternity past. And I think the hardened... There may be even some within the hardened that God breaks through, because I think all of us, to some extent, get hardened, unless, like I said, you become a believer when you first hear the gospel and you're a little child. So God breaks through, but for those, the way I try to put it together, for those that have never, who are not chosen, God allows to continue in the hardening process and doesn't, doesn't intervene. Somebody was asking a question there. I don't know if okay. I got to your question yet, Katie, but if not, you can re, re-ask it. Somebody else was commenting there. Uh, well, so you, uh, I think, so you're saying that, uh, that we're, see, when you say God chooses, there, you, you always need to think in terms of God chooses what? Uh, and, and for what purpose? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, and Israel, it seems like you're stopping short of saying, well, God chooses some for the purpose of, of eternal life. I'm saying because both. You're, because you're saying the Bible teaches unlimited atonement. Yes. Yeah. I think 
the whomsoever, and we talked about this in, in even these passage, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But to put it together, the divine side is that there are some that God has chosen and some obviously will never be saved who God passes over. Now, I don't believe in double predestination, which is a uh, another aspect of, I think, some of the extreme Calvinists would believe in, in that God's... What is double predestination? Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask what that was. The way I would state it, God chooses some and passes over others. Double predestination would say that God chooses some and prevents, I guess you could say, or hardens others without any opportunity. In other words, they are hardened, and no matter what they do, they're prede- uh, predestined for hell. That's double. Okay, pre- that's pre- so double. like double chosen, meaning some are chosen for eternal life in heaven, and some are chosen for eternal life in hell, and that's double predestination, exactly. which the Bible does not yeah, teach. I don't, I don't think it does. Okay. Uh, okay. That's the best way that I find to, to kind of explain it from the perspective that I'm talking about is that God passes over them and allows depravity to work itself out without intervening. And had God not chosen and started the process in eternity past, none would be saved. And you can go all the way back to Genesis. It's always God that takes the initiative. Adam and Eve flee, and it's God that calls them. It's God that uh, awakens them, and it's God that confronts them with their sin. And then there's there's evidence that uh, Adam and Eve believed. Steve. Great. Could you, uh, I got a request here. Could you repeat that? But before you do, when I think of Adam and Eve, uh, God, from what I've heard from you, didn't necessarily, I mean, he allowed people, he, he allows us to live. We don't really have the right to be born or to live. So, Knowing that, knowing what happened in the garden, that God didn't snuff us out as a believer, uh, that astounds me. Yeah. That's incomprehensible. Yeah. And there's some incomprehensibility in this whole area. Yeah. I've. That's what I say. Yeah. I say a lot of times also. God was not under any obligation to make any provision for Adam and Eve. He states it clearly and bluntly in the day that you eat of the fruit that's in the midst of the garden, you shall die dead. Remember, I use that phrase to capture the Hebrew there. In other words, surely die. In other words, there's no other option. God would be perfectly just to just snuff out all of humanity with Adam and Eve. Well, but, uh, I think you, I don't know. It seems like when you, to me, when you look at Adam and Eve, you got to start out with the fact that they had no sin nature. Mm-hmm. And, and you also have to look, think about that in the, in the eternal context of why he created them in the first place. Yeah, of course. And, uh, so, uh, wow. his, you know, he created them in his image without a sin nature. And uh, his his plan for all eternity was to create uh, this kingdom to come. Yep. Uh, so, um, 
Yeah, all I'm saying uh, well, is... So he, he's obligated to his own plan, I guess, is ultimately part of the answer. Yeah, yeah. Well... It was his, it was his eternal plan. Right. Yeah, I stopped before... Yeah. Great. Or you stopped me before I went on. Let, let, me, uh, let me complete what I, the thought. Go ahead, Rick. God would be perfectly just in his justice to have wiped out all of humanity with Adam and Eve. But God is also gracious, and God also, like Jim is pointing out, has a plan and has a vision that it's not like God is saying, oh, now uh, now what do I do? He has a plan that included the fall of man, and he had a plan of redemption, and, and all of this is to glorify himself. And eventually, God will complete all that he's planned, including the plan that, or the part that sin and evil play. Now, this is kind of a big, big, big issue. So Adam and Eve have an opportunity to respond, but God makes all of the provision. And the point I'm making in this idea of election is God is always the one that initiates it. It, because of depravity, once depravity sets in with Adam and Eve and all of the descendants, God must intervene in order to overcome our depravity. David, did you have a further comment? I'm just, I'm just reminded uh, in this particular scenario of the story of the rich young ruler, that Jesus approached him specifically, already knowing from the future past what his response was going to be. But nevertheless, the Bible says Jesus loved him mm -hmm. and reached out to him. And it was his choice, ultimately, to turn away. Yes. Not that Jesus ever did, never did. Yeah, there's always... What, there's what always, uh, Jim was saying is clarified by the phrase, for his good pleasure. Yes, yes. And I, I would agree with that. So... There's this plan that is being worked out in relation to Israel. And as we've gone through a lot of these passages, we also see that there's a corporate aspect in terms of Israel. And in fact, that's the emphasis of chapters 11, uh, 9 through 11 is the corporate aspect. The entire blue, the dark blue on the screen there, that's all of Israel. God has a plan for all of Israel Within that, there's a specific plan for what he describes or Paul describes as the children of God or the children of promise, which would be true Israel. We also saw that there's a part and a plan that is not even mentioned until the end of chapter 9 with the Gentiles, where he first refers to them. Now, he's going to talk some more about that in chapter 11. And to bring it to the passage we're looking at, this all of ethnic and national Israel, true Israel, he calls them the chosen in verse 7, the elect, the chosen. And to me, it seems they were seeking a right relationship, Israel, all of Israel, but they were doing it self-righteousness. And the passage tells us those that were chosen found it, but the rest of Israel did not. And instead, it says that they are hardened. So verse 7 speaks to the hardening aspect. I don't know if I answered everybody's questions or not. That Back to the issue. I see. I see. Go ahead, Nate. 
Can I throw in two sentences? Yes. Maybe four. Sure. Um, yeah. So the, as far as this topic goes about election, the eternal life and the choosing of God in the soteriological sense, the, um, there's, you know, scripture, as we're seeing, presents certain what, what are called tensions, referred to as tensions. Yeah. So where on the one hand, like, um, has already been observed, there's passages that talk about whosoever believes, there's um, the, in First Timothy, where it talks about God desires all to be saved. Yes. And on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have other passages where at least as far as a lot of people understand them, present God's choosing and God's role in the process. And then so the question is, how do we uh, understand those verses in a way that, that none is contradicted within its own context? And um, so, yeah, it seems to me that scripture does teach that God wants all, that Jesus died for all, unlimited atonement, that all are able to believe. Now, some that put a heavy point on the sovereignty of God would dispute that point, but I would say that all are able to believe. And and then, so what is God's role in that, in the choosing? And one thing that Roman does say that we, and I think Jim kind of hit the nail on the head of why does he choose some, and maybe not as much why, although that's a good question, but on what basis yeah. does he Use them, yeah, and and we see clearly in Romans the one thing we that we can say is he does not choose people on the basis of their works. It specifically says that, right. that they weren't chosen because of works, but that does leave the door open to God having other reasons. And it seems to me this is where we don't have the information to be able to answer fully the question. But I think that does leave the door open to. God's foreknowledge in the terms of, of knowing who will respond um, under what circumstances and, and all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, and other reasons that we may not know, but we know that whatever they are, they're just reasons because God is just. And then just my last point, sorry, many sentences is in this very passage, it's interesting because in the outworking of God's plan, there is a, um, the, before the cross, we see in this, he'll talk about this in chapter 11, before the cross, the majority of the saved people were Jews, most likely. Yes. And after the cross, up until our point now, the emphasis in God's plan is on the Gentiles. So before the cross, there are Gentiles who were saved. But numerically speaking, it doesn't seem to be as high a percentage as Jews. And after the cross, numerically speaking, it's more the Gentiles. And that's God's focus. Although there are individual Jews that also believe. But even in relation to when someone lives, apparently enters into this this whole issue. So so there's eight questions we just, I don't think we can answer, but whatever. Yeah. And back, back to your initial word there, there is a tension. There's the divine side. And what I try to do is maintain the balance between the divine side and the human side where there's lots of passages, the whole book of John, in that uh, man is to believe and all who believe and and the world, uh, the verses that you're alluding to that deal with the world, you know, God dying for the world and those ideas. So the, that's the tension between the two. 
And I'm trying to maintain both. And sometimes I think one camp emphasizes one and the other to the detriment of the other. And I'm trying to maintain a balance. Okay, so I didn't intend to. We're kind of running. Is everybody ready to go on here? Any other comments? I think yeah, Nate, Nate summed up real well. And hopefully, once we got back on track, I hope I clarified a few things. So, verse 7, we have the contrast between a minority within a broader majority of hardened. And the only reason I was going through that is because it talks about the hardening in verse 7. And it looks, the hardening, the rest were hardened. It's more passive. But when you get into the next verse, just as it is written, the support that Paul gives, he puts God as the one that's doing it. Just as it is written, and notice, God gave them over. So we need to include that aspect, and that's why I kind of went through that long thing. I think that in time, the process, God reveals himself, man responds, and in general, man rejects that revelation. A hardening process begins. That hardening process continues, and the best way that I can come up with as to how it all fits together is God, for those that he has not chosen, he allows that thing to work itself out. And that's outpouring of wrath from Romans 1. And for those that he has chosen, and I would say in eternity past, based on the Ephesians 1-4 passage, he works the whole process leading to justification. In fact, all the way to glorification. So just as it is written, let's go over these quickly because I'd like to get through this passage. It appears that what is written seems to be at least an illusion, if not a combination of Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10. That's verse 8. Now, I was going to go back to that passage, but for the sake of time, let me just remind you. Remember, that's in the middle of the passage that we've been looking at from the prior passages in Romans. Paul has been alluding to chapter 30, chapter 28, and kind of in the middle of that. And one of the points I was making is this is even before Israel was a nation, before they, this is after the 40-year wilderness Deuteronomy is written to prepare the second generation to enter the land. They're not even a nation yet, and God is already predicting certain things because of the nature of man. It's reiterated in Isaiah. So we have evidence from scripture. Now I changed the outline a little bit. I think I said from Moses, which that's still accurate, but more specifically, if you combine the two, it's from the law and the prophets. And the reason I say that, because in 9 and 10, we're going to have another quotation from the writings, if you will. So the complete Old Testament. So God gave them over, like what it says in Romans. God gave them a spirit of stupor. This is the hardened, refers back to them. The rest were hardened. This is the biblical evidence. And that goes back to either the Deuteronomy passage and or both the Isaiah 29 passage. So God giving them over spirit of stupor, eyes 
to see not and ears to hear not. In other words, that's the hardening, insensitivity to spiritual things, spiritual blindness. You might even say depravity is involved in that down to this very day. And I think Paul is kind of reversing some of the wording in one of the passages, but I think he's doing it to emphasize that it was not only in the time of Moses that Israel has gone through a hardening process and been resistant to what God has has taught, but also in Isaiah's day, in the times of the prophets and the decline of the nation, And uh, I think the emphasis here that Paul is making down to this very day, down to the first century, time of which Paul is, is, uh, is writing to the Romans. So the hardness results from uh, the rejection of God towards the end of this hardening process. Well, not towards the end, but after man has already uh, rejected God. And then we have evidence from the writings. In other words, from the Psalms, that's verses 9 and 10. And David says, and now he's going to quote Psalm 69. And by the way, you might turn to Psalm 69 real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but I want you to notice one thing. And if somebody would read the passage that just precedes what Paul is quoting in Romans chapter 11, verse 9. Somebody want to read, let's see, uh, he's quoting here verse 22 and 23. Would somebody read verse 21? And while you're beginning to do that, I don't know who's going to read, but if somebody can... I can read it. Okay, Steve, before you read it, this psalm is... is is alluded to and quoted in more places in the New Testament than probably any other Old Testament passage. Overall, the passage is a lament for, in fact, it's a messianic psalm, and most of the quotations or allusions are in reference to Christ's suffering and dying. And an example of that is verse 21. So the psalm is a lament and a what's called an imprecatory psalm in that the psalmist is calling down judgment on those that rejected the Messiah. And interestingly, Paul is using this as an example of what is happening to Israel in his time. So read verse 21, Psalm 69, 21. Okay. 21 this is from the NASB okay they also gave me gall. they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink what does that refer to may there that's quoted in the new testament in the gospels matthew this is jesus on the on the cross oh on the cross yeah in fact this whole psalm is alluding to christ suffering, dying, crucifixion. And what David in the psalm is he's calling judgment upon those that have rejected Christ and crucified him, basically. And this is what they deserve. Paul, in the book of Romans, is applying it and referring it to Israel, the the ones that are hardened. 
And since you're there, Steve, keep reading and read verse 22, because this is where David is, is dealing with. Okay, 22. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. Okay, and the passage goes on. Notice I wanted you to read it just so that you could see that's what uh, Paul is quoting in Romans 11, beginning verse 9. So the passage, twenty Psalm 69, 22 through 23, Paul quotes it in Romans 11, 9 through 10. It's a lament on the suffering of Christ, a lament, lament psalm, and the most common in the New Testament, let their table become something. What is a table? He's going to use a lot of imagery in the psalm to picture this judgment, this judgment of God. And in this context, it's part of this hardening that Paul is talking about. The rest of Israel that will they will experience this during the church age. What is a table? Or that be the altar? No, I think it's more a place of feasting. Yeah, I don't think it's the altar. I think it's a table of feasting and a place where of blessing and joy. In fact, let's look at the imagery here. A uh, place of fellowship. Uh, Could it be a reference to the Passover? Um, it may, it may be, but I think the emphasis, because of what follows, is more this idea: a place of blessing, and God is going to turn this into the very opposite of that. It's going to be a trap, because in the midst of Israel's, you might say, ritual and self righteousness. All the things that they considered a blessing is now going to be a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. And I think the psalmist, David, this is poetic. So he's using three words here that are probably the same. In other words, they're different words to kind of portray by repetition the same idea. A snare and a trap, and a stumbling block. I think they're all synonymous. In fact, a snare is a kind of a trap. A trap that is in view here is used sometimes of a, of a net to trap an animal. And then a, a different image, you know, you're walking along and you stumble over a block, lots of blocks in the nation of Israel, in the land of Israel. Synonymous. In other words, this place that should be a place of blessing, this self-righteousness approach, is actually going to be a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. And God is going to use it as a retribution and a retribution to them. In other words, he's going to allow the natural circumstances to work themselves out such that Jewish people are trapped in this snare and it's a stumbling block. This is the hardening process. It's a retribution. So the retribution is just payback. In other words, this is justice. God working out justice. Israel deserves not only the hardening or the wrath, but the consequences of the choices. And then verse 10, let their eyes be darkened to see not. So it has effects within them, spiritual blindness, depravity working itself out and bend their backs forever. 
I think the imagery here is this crushing burden of the wrath of God upon the nation of Israel. And eventually, I think this will be worked out in the future in the Great Tribulation where it's going to crush them. And it's at that point that Paul, in even chapter 11, speaks of all of Israel being saved as a result of this burden that crushes them down. And we don't have time, but he's going to give the optimistic part beginning in verse 11, and that's where we'll pick up next next week. The restoration is yet future, and now he's going to have a kind of a interim discussion, 11 through 16, where he's going to lay out the purposes of Israel's failure. They're very far-reaching, so God is going to use even the failure of Israel to accomplish his purposes. And their transgression is salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's the first of at least three purposes that God has that he's going to explain in that passage. So that brings us to our final slide here. Hardening is a result of resisting our Lord, and it's worked out historically in Pharaoh, worked out historically in the nation of Israel in the first century. And I kind of expanded that if we resist the will and the desires of the Lord, there is a hardening process that we need to be aware of as well. Well, we went a little longer, but it's your fault. <laughs> you guys had lots of discussion and comments. I thought they were good, though. Great. Thank, thank you for answering them. And I know that's kind of what I was going to be calling you about. So I, I hope that, we you know, can, kind of delaying that phone call and asking these questions helped others um, maybe answer questions in their own minds as well. Because Feel free to call. We can discuss um, it yeah, more because you had some other questions yeah. as well. Yes, yes. I'll call you later. But thank you for initially, you know, those those other questions. So you're, you're welcome. I really appreciate it. And since you've got your mic open, that means you have to close for us. <laughs> I would be glad to. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for bringing us together each week. Um, and I pray for those who weren't able to come on this week. Uh I just pray that you bless bless their day today, and um, thank you for the truth that we have in your word that never fails, and the promises that um, you've made from from the beginning of time, Lord. Um, just thank you for your your justice and your mercy and your grace, Lord. Um, I thank you for Ray for um, explaining these truths to us and um, just being faith a faithful servant. For you, Lord, um, and all for your glory in your name. Amen. Amen. Bye, everybody. It's a Is that Steve? Go ahead. Yep. Thanks, Ray. Goodbye, Thank you. everybody. Any other comments before we leave? See you later, Ray. See ya, Thanks. children. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Bye, Ray. Oh, we didn't get the Watkins. Can you uh, do it next week? Bye. Yes, we'll do it next week. <laughs> We're going to have an introduction, but we have something to look forward to now. Yeah, now that'll probably bring a bunch of people in for you next week, Ray. Yeah. <laughs> we, can, we can do the entire history of Mark Watkins' life in less than five minutes. So have I'm a good week, you. y'all. I'll have a good week. Take care. See, See you all. next week. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.